Good morning. We're working our way through a letter John wrote. John is the apostle. He lived, outlived the rest of the apostles by almost half a century. He is then, by the time he writes this letter at the end of the first century, he is the last living apostle, and he is the final eyewitness in an age when all kinds of people claimed to speak for God. John, when he spoke on God's behalf, did so. He was in a class by himself. He heard, saw, touched, and witnessed Christ and his resurrection. He also witnessed, by his time, the rise of the Antichrists. Let's see what he says. First John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no liars of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you about in him. John believed that Christ would soon appear a second time, and that as he did so, he would come to judge the world. It says that Christ will come a second time, and he won't be a little baby in a manger. As we've said, he'll be large and in charge. And John believed that that time was just around the corner. Why did he believe that? Because there had come to be many antichrists at that time. There is a figure talked about in the Bible, the Antichrist, which is an individual toward the end of time who will do damage or attempt to do damage to God's kingdom. And John writes that there, there are those who are possessed by the same type of influence, the same type of spirit that this individual will have. And he talks about them. We, we learn some things about these individuals, these Antichrists. It says that they went out from us. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. What is he saying? The Antichrist had been members of the church. So at one point, they were sitting in the congregation. They had been baptized, and they had been attending the church, perhaps, and very likely 
some of whom had been leaders of the church, those who had some position of influence in the church. And what ended up happening, they split off. And then when they did so, they were trying to draw away individuals within the church to join their splinter group. Paul warned the elders in Ephesus, where John is writing from, he warned them about four decades earlier that this would occur. Just listen, this is what Paul says. It's not in your worship folder, but I'll read. This is what Paul says in his last meeting. He knows he's going to go from Ephesus toward Jerusalem. He's not going to see these guys again. What Paul did, he went from place to place. And as we'll talk about, they the only Bible they had at the time was the Old Testament. That's all they had. And there weren't a bunch of them around. How many here have a Bible? If we talked in their time, how many here have a Bible? Nobody would have put their hands up. They didn't have one. So what you had to do if you wanted to get to know what the Bible said, you had to go to a meeting where somebody might have a parchment or something like that. And at this time, that there's no New Testament because it wasn't put together yet. The New Testament of the Bible, there are two parts to the Bible, you're probably aware. There's an Old Testament representing the 39 books which talk about things before Jesus. And this is the Jewish Bible. This is the Bible that would have existed at the time. So when they talk about the Bible and the Word of God, when the New Testament writers talk about it, that's what they're talking about, the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, our Bible has a second part, a New Testament. There's 27 books that take us from Jesus and help us to understand that. Um, What ends up happening here? These individuals then, when they went out, they would draw individuals and say, come to us and we'll really help you to know what the Bible is. We've got information from Jesus that is really important and it's not written down. That's why you need to come. And there's a tug of war for these individuals. Um, Paul said, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Listen, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. What Paul understood is for these individuals to be able to have their mindset put in a position where they would know the things that lead to life, he had to be very clear about what the message was, very clear. Paul was he was fastidious about that. It's a good word. Fastidious. He, he would, he just, and what he knew, individuals would come and they would say things, but they would talk about Jesus, but draw people away. And he was very frightened. The fact that these individuals would be insiders and former leaders and teachers made them more dangerous because they were individuals that members of the church he's writing to knew. Um, what did they teach? that John saw as non-Christian, says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. 
Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. They believed in Jesus, but they didn't really believe that Jesus was God. They believed he was a good person, great moral teacher, but they didn't believe that he reflected who God was. I think I've told you before, but it bears repeating. I was in the summer of 1974. I was in Ocean City, New Jersey, sitting in Yogi Bear Campground as a security guard. And I was part of a Christian group that went there for the summer. And our job was to go there and to have jobs and to learn about Christ and how to make Jesus known. So I found a job at Yogi Bear Campground, and I sat there. No, I did not wear my ranger hat. I refused to do that. Anyways, I remember um, sitting there, and there was a a car that had YHWH on its back windshield. I don't understand that. YHWH. Anyway, so it came in and out. And and there was a there was a young woman in there who said hi and then she came to visit me once. And I was just sitting there and so we ended up having a discussion and she started talking about this, that and the other and how are you and what are you here for and yada yada yada. And then she ended up saying some things that were a little bit confusing, you know, don't do you know that Jesus wasn't born on Christmas? And okay, you know, I didn't know that. I didn't know much about the Bible, but okay. She said only 144,000 people are going to get to heaven. And I said, okay, that's an interesting thing. I really hadn't heard that either. And it was just kind of interesting. And I kind of, I wondered about where are these things coming from? And why are you telling me about this? And I had a strange feeling. I didn't know much. But I remember I, I came away. I was, I was kind of concerned enough. And I was just starting to figure this thing out that I could talk to God and tell him things. And I said, you know what, God, I'm confused. There's something not quite right here, but I don't know what it is. And would you help things be clear? And then she came back. And then I asked her a question. What do you think about Jesus? <coughs> and she said, well, I, you know, I believe he's... Do you believe he was God? She said, no. I said, oh, hmm. And I didn't. I didn't do that. <laughs> Did I say that she was good looking? So I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to make that kind of face. Uh, but it was, it was instructive. And what I ended up saying, that's interesting. And then I learned more about Jehovah's Witnesses. They teach that the present world order is under the control of Satan. They believe that God will use Jesus to fully establish his human government on earth. So Jesus will come as a political figure to establish his human government on earth. He will destroy existing human governments and non-Jehovah's Witnesses and create a society of true worshipers. See, that's when you get, that's what's deep underneath. That's, you're not going to hear that right away. You're not going to hear, you know, Jesus born on Christmas. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is what you're not going to hear. Their mission is to warn as many people as possible in the remaining time before Armageddon. Um, these individuals John's dealing with aren't Jehovah's Witnesses, but they do claim to believe in God the Father, but not in the Son. And what John says, eh, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. You can't believe in the Father 
and not believe in the Son. They might believe, they might then, Jehovah's Witnesses, and they could some good people, well-meaning. The problem is, if you don't believe in Jesus, you can't really say you believe in God, because Jesus reveals God. Jesus is God. And you can't get a picture of God then by just looking at the first 39 books of the Bible. You can't. There's some things in there that are very strange. If you want to know what God is like, Jesus is the one who reflects God in the way that God knows we need to see him. Um, John warns against being pulled by these former church leaders and they claim a spiritual reality that they hadn't experienced within the church. What they said, and so let me be one of them at a church meeting. Okay, and we, you know, I used to come here, and I'll tell you what, I've received a special anointing. Special anointing. And anointing is something that kind of sets one apart. And these individuals pulling these individuals away claim to have had a special anointing, a special spiritual endowment, something that fast-forwarded their spiritual life, so it went from this to that. And that's what they claimed. I was watching a TV show once where sometimes you see this on TV, on in Christian education things, and there's people who will be singing and stuff like that. And maybe you've seen some of the programs and there's very demonstrative, and I'm just, anyways, so there's people that, you know, one guy will kind of do this, and sometimes people fall over. You know, and that's associated with the anointing. It's kind of being overwhelmed by something. And uh, I saw this one guy who was singing, and he sang, and then he got, he got zapped once, and he fell down, and then he got up, and he did, he got zapped twice. And he got anointed twice, and then I was thinking, boy, this guy is really going to sound good, but he sounded about the same. Uh, uh, John, well, John tells them they had already received the anointing. They had already received it. And what he says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. That's the Holy One of Israel. That's the Father. He says, you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. What is this anointing John is speaking about? Do you have to get anointed? Do you have to get hit in the head and fall over? Have some spiritual experience? Now, again, some of you might have had the spiritual experience, something like this. I haven't, and I know I have good friends that have, so I'm not throwing rocks at that. I guess what I am saying, do you need to have had a special experience in order to be anointed or in order to, to be set apart? And what John says, no, you guys, and he speaks, to have had an anointing. And he talks about, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The anointing that you receive from him remains or abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you. You know what they're being told? You're not getting the full deal here. So you need to come with us and we'll tell you the things that will usher you into this upper level of spiritual experience. And what John is saying, don't buy it. Don't buy it. Because what John will say, we have in his, in, in his time, he goes, I heard Jesus in the flesh. I know what he said and I know what he meant. And therefore, come to the place where 
John and those trained by him would tell them how to understand the Bible. John says, don't go anywhere. You think you'll be advancing in spirituality, but guess what? You won't be advancing. You'll get tripped up. He, Paul talked about savage wolves. And just so you know, a wolf doesn't hate sheep. Wolves don't hate sheep. No, they snarl at them, I guess. They just need to eat them. And so a wolf is somebody who needs to consume the devotion of the flock. They need to see the flock agreeing with him. And then he kind of laps that up and and feels better. about That's kind of what a wolf does. Um, this anointing is most commonly associated with the Holy Spirit. And again, it's one kind of spiritual experience. It's the result, the, the result of the anointing tends to be seen as interior and self-focused. It's something that makes you feel personally different. And that's what we associate the anointing with sometimes. It's something that you get that has been expressed in a lot of different ways. And again, I'm talking about this and I'm not, I'm not throwing rocks at the experiences, but it has been seen in so many different ways. The shakers, you know, literally, how did you know that if you had the spirit, the anointing? It was, you know, kind of like this, shaking. And it's really, really, that's what they would call shakers. And then in Canada, there was spiritual laughter. And so you go to a meeting and somebody would break out in spiritual laughter and just laugh, belly laugh. And then everybody would belly laugh. And that's the spirit. Or some people that bark like dogs and, you know, we tend to associate the Spirit with all these kind of phenomena. You know what John associates it with? The Spirit of God and the Word of Christ. And at that point, if you wanted to experience the Word of Christ, there was, and at that point, there wasn't a New Testament. There was only one game in town. That was the place where John was or John's people were. And what John says to them, you stay in your seat. Again, I'm not saying this to you now. I'm just retrofitting it back. That's what John's point is, because the anointing isn't private. It's when individuals gather together under the influence of the word of Christ. And it's something we experience individually and yet corporately. It's not just a private thing. We have a sense of seeing things in the West very individually. You know the thing Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back and take you to myself to be with me where I am. And then we kind of think, oh, he's preparing a place for us. It's going to be a mansion on a hill. Interestingly, at that time, prepare a place, they would have thought of this. This is an insula. And this is the kind of structure that they built at the time. It was like almost little apartments around a common courtyard. Isn't it interesting when they thought about, I will prepare a place for you? This is what they were thinking about. You're going to be my neighbor, and God will be in the compound. And we will experience him together. It's not just me in my private mansion on a hill, but me with others together experiencing God. That's, that's the way Jews thought about it. Um, 
They are being told, these Jews, that anointed teaching exists elsewhere. John tells them that they've already received the word of Christ. This is the anointing that they've received, the word and the spirit. John is encouraging them to remain where they can benefit from this. Remember, there's no Bibles available. When I was in Yogi Bear Campground listening to this girl, it seems like the same Jesus. But it wasn't. And it wasn't very clear that it wasn't. That's a tricky thing. Uh, John could see down the road. He could see that if you get pulled out, you'll end up being misled. Paul felt the same thing. Um, if you work for the Treasury Department, I've heard this said, if you work for the Treasury Department and um, they're teaching you how to detect counterfeit, what they're going to do is they're going to give you currency. And they're going to say, study this. No, just, oh, that's a dollar bill. Okay, no, study it. And can really so thoroughly familiarize yourself with what authentic currency looks like that when there are deviations, it will be noticeable to you. That's how they train treasury officials. And that's a way, I think, as well, we can understand Things because before we understand counterfeit spiritual influence, let's understand authentic spiritual influence. Um, before we can understand antichrist influence, we need to understand Christ influence. But it says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. If you want the influence of Christ in one word, we've talked about this before, reconcile is the word. What did Jesus come to do? To reconcile you to the Father. Reconcile. What is the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is the message of reconciliation. You want it in one word? What's Jesus? What's Christ's influence? What's this all about? It's about reconciliation. What did Jesus come to do? He came to reconcile you. Reconcile is to end a relationship of enmity or hostility and to substitute for it one of peace and goodwill. So when Jesus comes to the planet, the default sense with respect to God is that he's at war with me and he hates me. And what's supposed to happen on the far side of Christ showing up is I didn't understand the Father until Jesus revealed him. He's not at war with me. He's not at war with me. He doesn't hate me. He doesn't he doesn't hate me. That's Christian influence. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what Jesus came to do, to reconcile us. It's a concept that was really applied to a religious setting. You know why? Because for a Greek or a Roman, the idea of a God wanting a personal relationship, that doesn't make sense. Gods didn't like people. They didn't want anything personal with people. That's why Paul takes this word and uses it. He applies this word to the cross. Reconciliation lends a clarity that forgiveness 
and salvation. Now, those are important words. But reconciliation adds an element of clarity that that Paul felt needed to be there. What did Jesus come to do? He came to save you. That's true. He came to justify. There's all kinds of words. He came to reconcile. That's what, what So reconciliation is the clearest answer. And the good thing about reconciliation is you don't have to blow dust off of it. It's not a stodgy Christian word. Something we understand. It's reconciliation. It's to take a relationship that is not good and make it good. That's what Jesus came to do. Reconciliation is something God does. Something God does. If we have an issue, and I have an issue with you, reconciliation has to start with me. It has to be my decision. I'm going to bury the hatchet. I know you did some things. You might owe me money. You might do that. And when I am at the point where I am ready to move our relationship out of this against into a with, this is my decision. And when I do that, it will be my initiative. You know what happened in religion or happens oftentimes in religion? It's seen that we take the initiative. And God responds, right? We take the initiative. We give. We serve. We pray. We, and then God says, okay then. Okay then. I'll get over what I was thinking and I didn't, I wasn't thinking very good things about you and you did that thing and I noticed what you put in the box and I noticed what you put in the offering plate and I noticed that you're in church this morning. And so, okay then. And, That's man's initiative and God's response. That's backwards. It's backwards. God initiates. And we respond. That's the way it works. Reconciliation turns this whole idea about us initiating God respond. It turns it on its head. When does reconciliation become real? If I write a letter of reconciliation, and it's in terms of, let's say I'm going to bury the hatchet. I write a letter. And I give it to you. If you don't read and believe what I've written, are we going to be reconciled? You have to read it and believe it. That's the thing I love about reconciliation. It's not, see, so in reading and believing, you're not doing something, but something happens, doesn't it? You're not making the reconciliation happen, but you are making it happen for you. It's already been extended. So when you read it and believe it, what ends up happening in your mind? Your mind shifts. He's no longer mad at me. God's no longer mad at me. What would it mean to you? And again, all of us deal with this. We all deal with the idea that God looks and what difference would it make if you understood that Jesus came and God's not mad at you? He knows what you did. You'd say, that's dangerous. Then what would keep me from doing the right thing? I got a question. Will the fear of God help you to do the right thing? Hmm. 
If you're afraid enough of God, will you do the right thing? Will you do what he asks? Before you answer that question, God showed up on Mount Sinai. He was terrifying. It was terrifying what happened on Mount Sinai. It was a, it was a sensory assault. There was the smell of smoke and the, the sound of thunder and sight and it was, it was, you know, like it's, it was terrible. And you know what happened a month and a half later? They were making the golden calf. A month and a half it lasted. Is fear going to keep you in line? Will fear enable you to love? Absolutely not. God's requirement is that we learn to love, and guess what? Fear is not going to do it. Do you need to be more afraid of God? Some of you think, well, yeah, I think I do. Hmm? Hmm? Really? You know what your deal is? Your deal is the same thing as mine. You need to become less afraid of him. More able to tell him what you really think and feel. He already knows it. What will that do? It'll create a relationship. A relationship. Um, Jesus came to reconcile. It says, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, salvation's free. But what John seems to indicate here, if this is the place where you're going to hear about God reconciling the world to himself through his son, and you get pulled into this other place, will the reconciliation continue? It's a good question, isn't it? Hard to say. Will you be able to keep in your mind the sense that God is not mad at you? I don't think so. Because you know what we instinctively believe? That he is. And we need to hear it all the time. No, he isn't. No, he isn't. No, he isn't. Because it naturally we will think that he is. And we have to continue to believe it. And it take, takes time. Is it worth it? really is. It seems kind of frightening. I, I get that. But it is how things work. Why? Because reconciliation is what Jesus came to do. That's the word. God's not at war with you. And you know what? You need to believe it. I need to believe it. And that's why we're going to talk about it all the time. Um, you must believe it in order for it to be real. It says, you once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Do you know what? When we think of what we do, well, think about what you do. Think about what you do. Think about your evil deeds. Scroll them. Not all the same evil deeds. All of us are aware of doing things. Okay, think about your evil deeds. Think of them. Okay, we're going to do word association. You're thinking about your evil deeds? Thinking about them? God. Instinctively, when we're conscious of evil deeds, the thought of God makes us feel distant. And what do you need to know? God demonstrates, I want you to hear me now. 
God demonstrates his only love, his, his own love toward you, and that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. God sent his son when you were sinning. That's when he sent him. If God sent his son to you when you were sinning, is he going to pull his son when you sin? Some of you are shaking your head, no. Are you telling me that your sin doesn't cause God to turn his back on you? Is that what you're saying to me? That's exactly right. God does not turn his back on you when you sin. If he did, he never would have sent his son in the first place. He sent his son in the first place so that you would know that you are reconciled to him. So, if God's not at war with you, we've looked at this, that means God is in you. This is what reconciliation means. God is in you. And God is with you. And good is ahead of you Guaranteed, because God made a new covenant, and the New Testament talks about it, and because Jesus came to reconcile. That is true. This is what Christ will tell you. This is what Christ will tell you. And you know what Antichrist will tell you? Again, it's not a person, but it's a kind of teaching. God is not in you. God is not with you. Good is not ahead of you. How could he, how could good be ahead of you when, when you do things like you do? Of course good's not ahead of you. And don't believe it if you hear it. That's guaranteed because God is looking to judge the world. That's Antichrist. And it's wrong. That's not him. That's Christ, and there's Antichrist. We sort of we associate Antichrist with the devil, with Satan, and that kind of works. Satan means adversary or opponent. The devil means to throw over or across. If you were all sitting together and I threw something in the middle, something like a, a flashbang or a stink bomb or something like that. So if you're all sitting together and you know, then it's so it's right there, and I just, bam, and that's, the, what I did would be the same word that we get the word devil from. I deviled you. You know what devil means? It's to divide, separate, distance. That's what to devil means. It means to distance. To throw something in the middle so that there's distance. You know what the devil does, and it's, he's an opponent, so what he ends up doing then is he throws things into your head. You didn't, you didn't keep holy the Lord's day. Remember that thing about lying? Remember that thing about adultery? Bam! And what, what the distance is created is this. Yeah, I remember that. 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 That's, it's someone who plants information. And you know what? It's a false accuser. I want you to listen to me. Not because the allegations are false. Because the fact is, we do violate the Ten Commandments. We do. It's not false allegations because the allegations are false because they are spoken of as being reflective of God, what God wants you to know. 
Is God pointing out your sins? In order for, you know, like you do with a dog when it pees on the carpet? Well, I'm, I'm kind of, maybe I'm leaking here. <laughs> no, I, I've never heard of anybody doing that, Mike. Okay, doing what? When I was told, so when a dog pees on the carpet, <laughs> you rub his nose in it, there you go. Then you, then you whack him on the nose. I'm sorry, I, I, I've done this. Somebody say, yeah, what kind of dog did you have, Mike? And it's a good question. How did that work? <laughs> that stopped from peeing? Uh, some of you know the answer to that. No, it didn't. Um, it's what has so happening. It's not false. It's, it claims to be spoken of on God's behalf, and it's not. Is God going to rub your nose in your sin? Do you need to be aware of it? I think there's an awareness. You know what ends up happening to us? Our sin eclipses the face of God. I'm looking at this. This is a little thing here. Now I'm focusing on this. And I see, okay, now naturally I have to focus on Travis. Now if Travis is fuzzy, no, he doesn't think fuzzy. And I'm going to say this about it. Actually, Travis thinks very clearly. It's one of the things I appreciate about Travis, sincerely, sincerely. Has a very clear sense for what God is like. And he passes that on to our kids, and I really like that. Okay, but now, I'm looking at this, and Travis is fuzzy for a little bit. Let this represent sin, and Travis represents God. If I'm focusing on sin, can he be clear? Can't be, can't be. This is clear. In order for Travis to be clear, I need to look at Travis. And I need for sin not to eclipse the face of Travis. That's what, that's what God wants you to do. Be aware of sin, but gaze at the Father and glance at sin. Then you'll believe that you're not at war, and that really will help you. Uh, Paul says, 1 Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. And then he goes on to talk about in what happened in Corinth, and at the end it says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There's something that can empty the cross of power. Something that can empty the cross of power. That's, that represents the cross, not the cross, represents it. That can become powerless. What is it that could render the cross and empty it of power? What Paul talks about is that it's... Um, Divisions empty the cross of power. What ends up happening in this place is that there's dividing the church based on who baptized who. And so some of the church is saying, I was baptized by Paul. <laughs> Paul. Others were saying, well, that's nothing. I was baptized by Peter. <laughs> Peter. That trumps your baptism. Others are saying, you know, hey, shut up. Knucklehead. I was baptized by Apollos. <laughs> so that's what's happening in this group. And they're dividing based on who baptized them. And bragging rights. And that's what Paul points out as being, that's evil. We're desensitized to divisions because of what has occurred over the course of the past two millennia. I've looked at Wikipedia. I've told this before. I put in Christian denominations, how many? 
And Wikipedia has an answer. I'm not sure how accurate it is. What they say in terms of Christian denominations, there are 41,000 Christian denominations. I don't understand how there could be that many. You know what that reflects? One new split every six months since the church was initiated. Every six months, another split for the last 2,000 years. Um, We're 18,000 times worse off. Paul was afraid of the church splitting in threes. In threes, we're 18,000 times worse off. At the end of his letter, Paul gives some instructions. I'll go through this quickly to Titus. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy courtesy towards all people. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Paul put leaders in place, and what he says is, Do what they say. They've got the message, so do what they ask you to do. It says, speak evil of no one. The word is the word for slander. Means Slander means to make false and damaging statements about someone. False and damaging statements. That's what slander means. Biblically, the definition is different. It means to speak against someone. To speak evil of someone. And it's not just false allegations that are covered by slander in the Bible. It's when you say something true about someone, but it's harmful. It's The Bible just doesn't target false statements. It includes true statements that impugn somebody's character. When we speak ill of another person, especially within the church, when we speak ill of another person, we are not guarding the cross. We are gutting it. And we're emptying the cross of power when we create division. There are three gates through which we ought to require to go through before you pass something on about somebody that is demeaning them or disregarding or disrespecting them. Ask yourself these questions. Is it true? Is it necessary? And is it kind? And if one of those gates don't open, don't say it. Don't say it. Um, Because the cross was being emptied because of that. Is it true? Is it necessary? Do I need to say this? And is it kind? And if you can't answer yes, keep it to yourself. Cross was being emptied power, and it talks about those who create division. It's a word for heretic. In that day, a heretic wasn't a person who said something wrong. It's a person who took a Christian truth and blew it up out of all proportion in order to go to divide people and divide from God. It's individuals who say there's only one version of the Bible, just the King James. 
And if you're using a version other than the King James, you're a heretic. That's no, no, no. See, it's when little things like that. Now, the King James is a great version of the Bible. It is. But you don't have to read it in order to be a Christian. You know, it's when those little things are magnified out of all proportion, and that's the thing. How were you baptized? Were you dunked or <laughs> sprinkled? <laughs> no, it's, no, 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 no. Here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? What did he come to do? You know the answer to that, don't you? Do you know the word? What's the word that he came to do? Reconcile. That's what he came. Oh, that's good. Very good. You know, and that Jesus and the Father are one. And that to, to believe in the Son, believe in the Father. And if you disbelieve in the Son, well, that's okay. You still believe in the Father. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because they come as a package. They're both God. Um, Christ will convince us that we've been reconciled. Um, we're reconciled in spite of our behavior. I'm have the worship team come up. This is true. And we've, we've been saying this. I'll let you. When you, and we've been talking about this, when you do something wrong, it will occur to you that God is angry at you. And what you think is going to impact you, it is. It not maybe, it is. So here's what I here's what I recommend. When you are aware of doing something wrong, you think about these statements. And you may think them and say them. You're still in me. You're still in me. You didn't go anywhere when I did that thing. You didn't leave the room. You're still with me. Your sin will not cause God to back away from you. And what that means, good is ahead of you. You say, how do you know this stuff, Mike? Because Jesus brought a new covenant. And he says, I will forgive your unrighteousness. I'll remember your sins no more. That means these true statements are guaranteed. Again, let me invite you to stay with us. Have something to eat. And again, if you don't have money put on the thing, that's fine. Just join us. So we'll we'll just head back that way afterwards if you're able to stay. If you're able to sign up for the, the banquet, there's a table on the way out. But let me pray for us. God, thank you for reconciliation. Thanks for a word that helps us to conceive of what you came and intended to do by sending your son and for what it means to us. I pray that we would become more conscious of it. Um, thanks for the food that we'll enjoy and ask that you would bless the time partaking of it and, and joining with others in doing so. In Jesus' name, amen.